number one. Wonderful singing again this morning. It's been a joy and a blessing to sing together, singing from our hearts, praises to our, our Savior. Wonderful doctrine, wonderful truths in those songs that we sang this morning, that the choir sang. And in Philippians chapter number one, in verses seven through 11, we see some doctrine that Paul is thanking the Lord for that is evident in the lives of the Philippian believers. And this is literally a prayer, a prayer that we can pray for one another, a prayer that a pastor can pray for his congregation, a spouse can pray for their husband or wife, that parents can pray for their children. We see in Philippians 1, as we were looking at last week in verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy. This is a prayer that shows the heart of Paul for his people, for the people at Philippi, that is similar, as he will even make reference to, in uh, verse number 8, in all the bowels of Jesus Christ. He's saying that my love for you as a church family, as Philippian believers, is, is like that of Christ. Obviously, Paul is not saying, I, I, I can't love you the same way that Christ did, but in, in a similar fashion, with that kind of sacrificial agape love, we see Paul's heart. As we began this study through the book of Philippians last week, we went through the introduction, a customary greeting that Paul would use, grace and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, making reference to those great truths, grace and peace that comes truly only from God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about the, the people that Paul references, Paul himself, Timothy, his son in the faith, as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of us as believers should be servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. The saints in Christ Jesus. We mentioned last week that all true, genuine believers are saints upon trusting Christ as one's personal Savior, repenting of one's sins, putting one's faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are made a saint, separated from sin and sanctified in Christ Jesus. There's no canonization, there's no council that needs to declare a person a saint. It's simply through repentance of one's sins and faith in Christ and Christ alone for their salvation that we are justified in Christ Jesus, made a saint. He mentions the bishops and the deacons, the two offices of the churches. And he talks about the provisions of grace and peace in that customary greeting. And then there is praise. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. And then there's the prayer. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. The prayer continues into verses 7 through 11. In verse 6, we talked last week about that performance, that beginning. God is the author of our salvation. God who orchestrated the plan of redemption. And in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, God, the second person of the Trinity, God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the preeminent one throughout this whole paragraph. 
throughout the entire Bible, throughout Scripture, Christ is the preeminent one. And he is emphasizing the preeminence of Christ and this performance where we read in verse number six that he who hath begun a good work in you, God, who saved you, he is the author and he is the finisher of our faith. He who hath begun a good work in you will perform it. He will finish it. He will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. But then we drop down there to verse 7, our text that we have read already this morning. For even as it is meet for me to thank this of you all, because I have you in my heart. We say that sometimes. That's a phrase that we will, we will even use today in the 21st century. You're, you're in my heart. Or something similar to that. It's a phrase that, that speaks to the, uh, the affection that we carry for someone. That's even down deep in our innermost being. The heart is referring to the whole inner man. Paul is simply saying he has a deep affection for them. We can tell just by reading in these few verses, Paul had a deep care and love for this church, didn't he? They're, they're a first-generation church, really. They started as a, a small group of believers down by the river, and Lydia got saved, and then through prison evangelism, as the Philippian jailer was about to commit suicide, and he called, cried out, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And that jailer and his household got saved, similar to how Lydia the seller of purple and her household got saved. And then there was persecution that came. And yet through all that, God brought together a group of believers and formed this church at Philippi. And now nine years later, Paul is writing back to them. And you can tell his great love and his affection. They are in his hearts. He also says it is meat, even as it is meat for me to thank this of you all. I know we don't use this phrase quite the same way today, but he's simply saying there is a reason. There is evidence that gives him confidence that they will be together one day in the day of Christ because there is a fellowship with the, in, in the gospel in verse number five. He goes down in verse number seven, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. He says, you are saved individuals. We have a fellowship in the gospel. And he said, you have now lived that out. There is evidence of your salvation. He says, I have great confidence. I have reason. I have confidence. It is meet for me to think this of you all. They have been walking in truth. They have even shared with him in his bonds. We're not exactly sure what all that means. We know that there was persecution when he was there originally in Philippi. It, it, it seems to me that there were people who stood with Paul, though the magistrates, the city leaders, they came and cast him in, in jail unjustly. Paul and Silas being Roman citizens, they didn't follow Roman law. They didn't follow due process. They unjustly, not just because of the persecution, they weren't guilty of doing anything. They cast a demon out of a little girl who was being exploited by adults for financial gain, for entertainment purposes. 
They rescued her, delivered her. She got saved that day. She was delivered from that demon. They had done nothing wrong. They're unjustly thrown in prison. And it seems that the Philippian believers stood with Paul. The Philippian jailer gets saved, his household. They eventually are, are forced to leave the city. But it seems that through all of this, the Philippian believers have been faithful to support Paul. They have even sent an offering by the hand of Epaphroditus to help Paul, who was a tent maker, and now he's in prison for preaching the gospel. Epaphroditus literally takes his own life in his hands and comes to Paul near death. There has been a standing with Paul in his defense and confirmation of the gospel. He says, ye all are partakers of my grace. He is saying that they have shared with him in this burden, in this defense of the gospel, in this preaching, in this taking the gospel to the known world. They have shared in that. They have stood with him. It is an evidence of their salvation. And it's brought him great confidence. It has given him great reason to believe that they are genuine believers. And he is rejoicing in that. It brought joy to his heart. This was not a group of people who made a profession of faith and then wandered off. This was not a group of people who made some sort of outward profession and then it never really took root. No, this was genuine faith. This was believers who had borne fruits. There was evidence in their life and their willingness even to stand with Paul and in no, in, in, in no doubt probably suffered some measure of persecution themselves. Paul and Silas had been run out of town. What was it like for those believers who stood with Paul and Silas and now were supporting him, sending an offering, sending Epaphroditus, and even the Philippians were sending money down to Jerusalem to help the believers in Jews. And remember, Philippi was a Roman colony, hardly any Jews. This church was probably made up of a lot of Gentiles. And yet they're sending money to the Jewish, primarily Jewish believers down in Jerusalem, in addition to supporting the Apostle Paul. There was great reason for Paul to have these terms of endearment, this love for the people at Philippi. They had grown by leaps and bounds in just nine years as a primarily first-generation church. As I mentioned last week, they didn't even seem to have all the issues and problems that the church at Corinth did with all the carnality and the toleration, and, uh, the toleration of sin and the compromise and the infighting and backbiting. They, they didn't seem to have that. The theme throughout the book is rejoicing in the Lord and joy. The Philippian believers had a tremendous testimony. In verse number 8, Paul goes on to say, for God is my record. He says, upon the testimony of God himself, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Another term of strong, another, excuse me, strong term of endearment. He, he says, how greatly I long after you all. And he mentions, he uses a phrase, again, that we don't use a lot today, but I think we understand it. In the bowels of Jesus Christ, this has to do with tender affection for. Bowels represent the seat of affection. Again, not to be gross in any way, but we understand 
when things aren't right down here, when the gastrointestinal area of our body is not functioning properly, it causes great distress. We, we understand. There, there are particular feelings in this area of our body that represent a deep, intense feeling. Some have, have even, in one commentary that I read, uh, mentions that bowels could even refer to the upper body as far as the heart and the organs obviously central to our uh, respiratory system and our circulatory system. So that would bring even uh, another level of meaning to it, that there was such a deep affection that Paul said, my love for you is like that of Jesus Christ who gave himself. Paul couldn't say, of course, that his love was exactly the same as Christ. Paul didn't save them. Only Christ could do that. But he was saying, my love for you, I have such a deep love and a deep feeling of desire to be with you. He has such a love for them that it's similar to the very love that Christ has for his bride, for believers. We see Paul's heart here, don't we? It almost comes off the pages into our minds, into our own hearts, as we see this great desire, this great love that Paul has for the church at Philippi. And then he repeats in verse number nine, and this I pray. He says in verse four, always in every prayer of mine. He said in verse three, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Three already mentions of three references already to prayer. And really verses seven through 11 are a prayer, particularly verses nine through 11. And this I pray. What does Paul pray for? He prays for biblical discernment. He prays that the Philippian believers will have a discerning love. Biblical discernment is essential for righteous living. Our love for God, our love for others, is with biblical discernment. True biblical love is according to the truth. We have in our world today a mushy, therapeutic form of love. Love is love. Love wins. But the unsaved world doesn't have a true understanding of what love really is. There is all kinds of wicked manifestations and descriptions and displays of false love today that is nothing more than erotic lust and perverted lust. Paul is talking about a true biblical love, and it is according to the truth. It is with biblical discernment, which the Philippians have already been showing. And Paul is concerned that they continue to show this. There's no doubt some pressure from the outside. There's no doubt some false teaching. There's no doubt some level of persecution that they probably have already experienced, having seen Paul and Silas marched out of town, told to leave because of their proclamation of the gospel, and yet this church formed, and Paul is encouraging them. He's praying for them that they will have a discerning love. And we see, first of all, that we must, in having a discerning love, we must have an abounding love for God. An abounding love for God. We see here in verse number 9 that this abounding love for God 
that your love may abound yet more and more. It is what? It is based on knowledge. Genuine knowledge. The word here for knowledge is the word epikinosis. It simply means genuine, full, advanced knowledge. The opposite of which would be superficial, shallow, or false. Biblical love is not empty sentimentalism. It is rooted deeply in the truth of Scripture. The psalmist says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The choir just sang, The Lord is good. God is always good. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. That word taste, we think of it as maybe a lick of an ice cream cone. We think of it as maybe taking our finger and dipping it into something that we're not quite sure of and just tapping it on our tongue to make sure it's okay. We think of taste in those, that's not the word taste. The word taste is to know. The word epikinosis in the word knowledge here in verse 9 is genuine, full, advanced knowledge. In other words, God can and should be trusted. While it is a fearful thing, yes, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but we also know that God is a God of tender compassion, full of mercy and loving kindness, and a God who forgives. He is holy, so all of his works are right. We, in our love, must know God, truly know him. We know from Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not to thine understanding in all thy ways. Acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. That word acknowledge isn't just passing somebody by on a sidewalk saying, Hey, it's not that. It's knowing God in all thy ways. Know God. Know his heart on the matter. Know the principles. Know the commands. Know the truths. Know God's heart. What is the biblical, Christ-like Christian view of this particular matter. Know God. That's true love. Biblical love is according to knowledge, true biblical knowledge of who God is, what he has done, and that comes from knowing Christ and knowing Christ through the word of God. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Trust him. Trust God. When we trust him, we will not be disappointed. People may disappoint us, but God will not. We have all these different trials and subscriptions and seven days of this and 30 days of that. And that's the way we want to treat God. Oh, I'll give church and I'll give God and I'll give the Bible a 30-day subscription, free trial, no charge. I'll maybe give them seven days. That's not the attitude here. When we fully and completely trust him, it begins with salvation. But then as believers in our progressive sanctification, we live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Walk worthy of the Lord. Walk in the Lord. The Christian life is a walk and sometimes it feels like a sprint. But it's always by faith and it's a love for God that drives that faith. We love him because he first loved us. We love him in return. We have a debt of gratitude in this love that Paul is praying for. 
that we can pray for, yes, ourselves and for our children and for our spouses, is that this love would abound yet more and more in knowledge, in knowledge of God and who he is through the word of God in growing in our relationship with him. And God will not disappoint. We see also in verse number nine that this love practices biblical discernment. It is based on genuine knowledge, genuine knowledge of God, of who he is, But also this genuine love, this abounding love, practices biblical discernment. The word here, judgment, is actually the word that we get our word aesthetic from. That might be more in the graphic design, interior design world, that kind of thing. We use the word aesthetic from time to time. It has to do with moral perception, insights, It has to do with the practical application of knowledge. It is closely akin to what is true biblical wisdom. Taking the truth of God, of his word, the truth about God, the truth of God's word, and applying it, living it out practically. Very similar word. Moral perception, insights. No, biblical love, biblical love is not blind. And we talk about the leap of faith. And love is blind. Well, truly, biblical love is not blind. It really really isn't. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Our love for God, our love, our faith is grounded in realities. God-ordained, God-created realities. The truth of who God is and what he has done and how he is working and what he has promised and what he is and will fulfill. Our faith, our love is not blind, is grounded in the truth and the realities of who God is and what he has done. Sometimes there's these ridiculous ideas that we need to empty our minds. We we need, and and really to get to the authentic self, Uh, To to really experience God, to to really go deep, we have to empty our minds. We have to get into some sort of transcendental meditation type of state. Well, nowhere in Scripture are we ever told to empty our minds. We're to be sober-minded. We're to have the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We're told to renew our minds. Be not conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What is the renewing of our minds? How are our minds renewed? How do we get rid of that stinking thinking? By the word of God. By the application of God's truth. By God's truth renewing our minds. We're not to be empty-minded that causes our brains to fall out. No, we're to be discerning people. We're to have a love that is discerning. We need to have discerning love and loving discernment. Think about immature love. Think about infatuation. We have all probably, if we really wanted to admit it, there was some time in our life where we had a crush on someone. You know, you're that little boy, that little girl. And I'll just admit, there was an older girl in high school. We were a bunch of little junior hires, and there was this older girl in high school that we all, us boys, had a crush on. Silly, just immature, just infatuation. And we'd be at the lockers, and we were in a small Christian school, so the high schoolers would sometimes pass by, and all of us little nerdy boys would be over there, you know, immature love. 
What, what does immature love do? Immature love just, it's just kind of silly. It, it, it's not really deep. It, it will sometimes even cause us to do some, some pretty, pretty dumb things. If you ever watched boys and girls in their younger years try to show their affection for each other, it can get kind of weird, right? It can get kind of awkward. It can get kind of nerdy again, to say, to say that word again. And, you know, there's a love that we had for our spouse at the time that we married them, but then that love grows, doesn't it? It gets deeper. As one person said it, it, it's like it starts at the kindergarten level. And we think that we can't love each other any more than that day we said I do, but actually that's just the kindergarten level. That might even be (laughs) pre-K. And then it grows to the elementary, and then we graduate into high school, and then we go off to college, and then we go and we get a master's degree, and then some of us are still working on a doctorate in love for our spouse, right? It never ends. It grows, and it gets deeper. That's the kind of love that Paul is praying by the inspiration of God and the preservation of his word that we would have for our Savior, that, yes, we try to emulate in our personal relationships, particularly in a married relationship. But the idea is that our love for God, it is abounding more and more in knowledge, in knowing God, and as we know Him more and we know Him deeper, and we taste and see that He is good, as we trust Him with all our hearts and lean not our understanding, He guides our paths, He directs our ways as we delight in Him. He implants within us the desires that he has for us to do his will, to obey him. And we love to obey him. We love to serve him. And it's a joy to be a Christian and to serve the Lord and to love Jesus. And it's a joy to be together with God's family and to sing praises to his name and to be with God's people. If we don't enjoy that, there's something wrong. Something wrong with our love. Something wrong with where we're at in our relationship with the Lord. Paul prays that their love would abound in knowledge, abound more and more, exponentially in knowledge and in judgment, in discernment, that our love will not be immature and awkward and not according to knowledge, but that our love would be in true, genuine knowledge of God through his word, through a personal growing relationship with Jesus Christ that exercises itself in good biblical discernment. As 1 Corinthians 13 says, love rejoices in the truth. As 1 Thessalonians 5 says, prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil. Love says, I love God so much that when sin makes an appearance, I love God so much and my love for him is so great and so discerning that I see sin and I avoid it. I get away from it. That I do like, jo- like Joseph, and I put on my running shoes and get out of there. And we all fail at that, to some degree or another. But when we sin, we ultimately are showing a disrespect and an irreverence and a lack of love for God. We're saying we love ourselves and we love our sin more than we love God. And Paul's prayer is that our love abound yet more and more in knowledge And in all judgment, we should have enough maturity to be able to discern truth from error, to identify and avoid false teaching, to call sin what it is 
and not be carried about by every wind of doctrine. In Hebrews chapter number 5, we're told that strong meat belongs to them who are of full age, whose senses have been exercised to discern good and evil. Some of us, sadly, are still on the baby food. Some of us are still eating purried green beans and chicken and carrots. You know how you dipped it out of the little jar and you did the airplane thing and you flew all around and you hope to get it in and then you have to wipe the kid's mouth off, right? That's the way some people still are. They're, they're, they're believers. But Gerber's diet is all they need. A little bit of church here and there, a little bit of God's people here and there, maybe a little bit of Bible reading when I have time. But life is busy. I got better things. I got more important things to do. I'll give, I'll, I'll, I'll serve God when I'm ready, when I have time for. That's not what Paul's praying for. He's praying for an abounding love that transforms our life, that, that, that consumes our life, so that we are a living sacrifice, transformed by Him and renewed in our minds, abounding more and more in knowledge and in all judgments. He continues with this abounding love, and he says not only, not only does it increase in genuine knowledge of God and who he is through his word, not only does it practice biblical discernment, but notice in verse 10, it approves things that are excellent, that ye may approve things that are excellent. That is an interesting phrase. I know it continues the same idea of discernment, but it literally means to prove things that differ. We do this all the time, especially if you're, you're in any kind of trade or work that involves, really, I mean, it comes down to even grocery shopping. We do this, we prove things that differ. We go to the grocery store and we pick up the cans of whatever it is or the package of whatever it is, and we prove things that differ. We might look at expiration dates. Some of you are on a special diet and you look at the calories and the fiber and the protein and salts and all that. And we compare, we look, and then we prove, we approve what is excellent, what is the right thing based on all these different factors, I realize. In Bible times, it was a term for metallurgy. They had to do with testing different metals that would check to make sure that the impurities were burned off, were washed off, that the metal was truly the purest quality of metal that they could have, that there were not impurities or weaknesses or some inherent quality of that metal because it hadn't been properly purged and therefore it had some sort of weakness that would then compromise that metal when it was used for building or whatever it might have been. No one wanted to walk out into the battlefield with a sword that didn't have the proper metal and be swinging that sword in battle and it snap off. Now what do you do, right? No, everything had to be proven. We have all the different technologies today, but it was in a more primitive state in the first century and yet it was extremely valuable. Your life could depend on the proper metals and the proper consistency that the impurities have been purged. It had to do with money. Money was only as valuable as the proper metal that it was made of and that the impurities were purged off. And pure, uh, it was purified so that the metal that was used in the money was actually of the value that it, it said. Now we have in our 
culture today, we don't have the gold standard anymore, right? Uh, our money is only as good as the $38 trillion in debt or whatever that we are now. I know we don't have the gold standard, but the idea of the metal of that coin being what it truly was, that it was genuine. And then it would even be involved in pottery. Everyday kinds of things, average people just going and needing pottery. We have all kinds of tubbleware and all kinds of storage containers. And we have, oh, the Stanleys. I forgot about the Stanleys, right? That, the, that's been the rage recently, right? The Stanley uh, water uh, cups. And uh, they were going on eBay and outrageous prices. But Stanleys and all the different, I mean, we had a cabinet. We just cleaned out a cabinet. We had probably 30 water bottles that we had collected through the years. Well, they had to go and they had to collect their water, their, their juice or whatever, and they had to use clay pots. And they'd go to the market in a clay pot. They would hold up in the lights, in the sunlight, and they would examine it all the way around, bottom, sides, everywhere. And sometimes what the sellers would do is they would, there would be a crack in the pot. And so they would fill it in with wax. So it would look, if you weren't careful, you didn't take the time to, to look at it in the sunlight, you wouldn't see that wax. Well, if it was used for anything that was hot, especially, but really it was already compromised if it had wax to fill in the crack, it could easily break, it could easily, that wax could melt in the fire while they were cooking, and their food's ruined. That, that pot, that clay pot that they just bought was useless. All of those terms are combined, all of that imagery is combined in this term of proving that she may approve or approve things that are excellent, that you're getting the real deal, that you are distinguishing what is really important, that you're not getting a fake, approve things that are excellent. He continues in this theme of discernment to speak to the fact that our lives should be marked by a priority on the eternal. Our lives should be marked by a priority on the eternal, that we are seeking first the kingdom of God, that we're setting our affections on things above, not on things on the earth, that our lives are marked by a priority on the eternal, what matters most. What do immature people do? They fuss and fight over little things. They hold grudges. They keep lists and petty differences, they won't let go of bitterness, they will win the argument at all costs, even if it means a relationship, sometimes even a family relationship, over something that's trivial, insignificant, silly. Whole churches split sometimes over the inability of a group of people to approve things that are excellent, but are fighting over petty differences. Instead, we should be setting our affections on things above. Our choices in approving things that are excellent, our choices should reflect a desire for holiness, for purity of life, for the exaltation of Jesus Christ and the glory of God. We shouldn't be known for our selfishness, for our immorality, for our greed, for our covetousness, for our anger, for our pride, or other sinful choices. We should be known for approving things that are excellent, what is eternal, that our value system, that our priorities 
are the things of God. We see in this passage, we see this abounding love. I've really spent a lot of time here that this abounding love for God is essential. With biblical discernment, with biblical knowledge, with approving things that are excellent, this abounding love for God is essential for biblical discernment, for righteous living. But we see also in verse 10, not only should we have an abounding love, but we must have a pure life. We must have a pure life. Look at verse 10, at the end of verse 10. That ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. That we be sincere. This has to do with genuine. There's no hypocrisy to our life. He also says, without offense till the day of Christ. We're to be blameless. Our lives should not cause others to stumble. We should be ready to stand before Christ at the judgment seats. We must have a pure life. Paul's prayer that they have an abounding love that exercises more and more knowledge, judgment, and approving things that are excellent. That they have a pure life. And then he prays that they also have a productive life. An abounding love, a pure life, and a productive life. Let's look then at verse 11. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. Fruitfulness. We go out, we plant. Some of you are going to be, maybe you've already started to prepare your soil. I don't know. I don't know when gardening starts. I'm not a gardener. Some of you may have already been out. And maybe the rain this week will help prepare the soil some more, and you're going to be planting soon. I don't know what that Time is, I don't know what the farmer's almanac says. Some of you might go by the almanac, I don't know. But some of you are going to be planting soon. We have those in our church who have been farmers or are farmers to this day. You know how critical it is. And when you plant and you do all the things that you know you should do and you trust God, you hope to have a harvest in September, October, November. And if you go out and you plant the corn, you expect to get what from the cornfield? Soybeans? Green beans, you expect to get corn. The, the, the farmer here, I don't know what's on, on uh, track for this year. I don't know what the schedule is. I think last year was soybeans. I'm guessing it's going to be corn this year. He's going to plant corn. We're not going to go out there and ask him for soybeans in November. But you know what? If we're not abounding in our love, with knowledge, discernment, with approving things that are excellent, then how can we expect when we plant corn to get soybeans. If we're sowing seeds of sin and wrong priorities, if we're not putting into the soil of our lives the qualities of godly character and godly discernment and love for God with knowledge and judgment and approving things that are excellent, we're going to reap. Galatians 6 is very clear that we will plant a certain seed and will reap from that seed. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying that if we are practicing these principles of abounding love with knowledge and judgment, approving things that are excellent, being sincere, blameless, till the day of Christ with an eternal perspective, he says, then what will result? Fruitfulness for Christ. Fruitfulness in living being filled with the fruits of righteousness. Planting seeds of righteousness results in fruit of righteousness. 
But sadly, so many times we beg God, God, give me fruits of righteousness. But what have we been planting? Seeds of carnality, seeds of selfishness and sinfulness. We've not been approving things that are excellent. We don't know God. We're not abounding in our love with discernment. We've not been sincere and without blame. And then we're expecting God and we're angry at God and we're upset because there aren't the fruits of righteousness. But Paul is saying in his prayer that to expect the fruits of righteousness, all these things in verses 9 and 10 have to take place first. But what are the fruits of righteousness? Notice that they are by Jesus Christ, and they're ultimately to his glory and to the praise of God. He repeats even at the end of verse 10, till the day of Christ, which was also a phrase in the end of verse 6, a similar phrase that are speaking of the same thing, until the day of Jesus Christ. There's an eternal perspective here. So this fruitfulness abounds unto eternity. It is laying up treasures in heaven. It is looking to the reward, not that we are seeking a reward from God for our own pride and our own selfishness and to go into heaven and walk around with medals on our chest and say, look what I've got and look what little you have. No, it's all of God. It's all to the praise and the glory of God because all of those rewards that we earn are only by his grace only by his power, and we turn around and we put those at his feet, whether they're crowns or whether they're gold, silver, and precious stones, and they are laid at his feet in praise. And don't we want an abundant entrance into glory with a huge container of rewards that only God, by his grace, allowed us to earn, that we can then heap praise to his holy name? Paul's saying this fruit of righteousness is by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And this fruit of righteousness includes the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, gentleness, meekness, temperance, faithfulness. It includes souls one to Christ. Romans 1, ye are my crown. It includes holiness. It includes every good work. It includes praise to God. Even the fruit of our lips, which is praise to God. A productive life. God knows our hearts. God knows our thoughts. He knows our motives. And Paul prays that our love be abound, will abound yet more and more in knowledge, knowing God, in judgment, that our love be discerning according to the truth, that we approve things that are excellent, that we are sincere, that we are genuine, that we are blameless, without offense, that we might bear fruit for God that God desires to richly reward us with, that then we can turn at the day of Christ when we stand before the judgment seat and pour them out to the Lord in praise to his holy name. This was Paul's prayer for the Philippian believers. This is a prayer that we can have from one another for our spouse, for our children, for our grandchildren, for those we are ministering to. May we have this kind of prayer, this kind of desire, this kind of love, for others, that we would pray this prayer and that we would live this out, that we would live out these truths, this kind of abounding love that produces discernment, that produces fruits of righteousness for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these truths. Lord, Paul had such a burden as 
happy as he was, as joyous as he was in the growth and the maturity of this Philippian church, Lord, he desired and he prayed earnestly with a great love for them to grow in their knowledge, to have the abounding love that was based on the knowledge of God and biblical discernment that proved things that are excellent, that was sincere, that produced holiness and blamelessness and brought fruitfulness. And Lord, may that be true in each and every one of our lives. May we pray this for one another. May we see these truths lived out. May we see fruits of righteousness in our own lives and in our church to your honor and to your glory. Lord, if there's someone here who's not saved, Lord, they can't produce these fruits of righteousness because they don't know you. They don't have the Holy Spirit. Lord, may today they turn from their sin and turn to you in saving faith, that they too may produce fruits of righteousness to your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Derek, excuse me, Jake is going to come. Jake is going to come. One of these days I'll, I'll get that right. <laughs> I keep getting that confused. Jake is going to come and lead us in our closing hymn. We sang Great is Thy Faithfulness so well just a short time ago. We'll stand once again and turn to 119. Jake will come and lead us in stanza number one of Great is Thy Faithfulness. As we sing this hymn, it's our hymn of invitation, of benediction. If God has spoken to your heart, you can do business with the Lord as we sing. If you'd like to stay behind, if we can help you in some way from the Word of God after the service, we'd be happy to do so. The invitation is always open. If we need to make an appointment this week for some need, we'd be happy to do that as well. But Jake's going to come and lead us now. 119, Great is Thy Faithfulness, stands at number one. <laughs>